1: Hi, it's Michael Smirkanish. Welcome to Book Club with Michael Smirkanish, a collection of Michael's favorite interviews with authors from the last 30 years through today, on the air, on radio. What sets my book club apart is that I actually read the books. Book Club is now in session. Hey, I've
0: already told you that I think Nina Totenberg's book, Dinners with Ruth, is terrific. A memoir On the power of friendships, and here she is, meaning Nina Totenberg, to discuss it. Nina, thanks so much, and congratulations. Thank you so much, Michael. All right, here comes. comes, you to have me on. Here's your grilling. I need you to fill in the blank. Which of your many dinner guests told you that you were carving your standard leg of lamb against the grain? (laughs) Sandra Day (laughs) O'Connor. And were you?
2: I guess. I mean, I just i don't know she i did what my mother did and i thought it was the right way to do it but maybe she was right I, mean, I just think it's hysterical
0: i i just thought it was hilarious as 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 evidenced by my noting it okay how about this one this is this is jeopardy style uh about you this individual once said quote she certainly is a persistent bitch j edgar hoover Oh, my God. In what context?
2: Well, I was a young reporter, I think probably in my late 20s, early 30s, and um, probably my late 20s. And I was assigned uh, to write a lengthy profile of J. Edgar Hoover. I was not working for National Public Radio yet. I worked for the late, great National Observer which uh, was the weekly publication put out by Dow Jones, which then owned the Wall Street Journal. And I spent a month interviewing people about him, and I wanted to talk to him. So I kept writing to him, asking him for an interview. (laughs) And when 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 I went to court to get some of the documents, and the Justice Department was trying to dissuade me from getting my own FBI file, one of the Justice Department officials showed me that one of these letters that I had written to Hoover, um, he had scrawled across it, she certainly is a persistent bitch, Unfortunately, I don't have it because it's what the Justice Department calls work product. And under the Freedom of Information Act, oh. you're not entitled to work products.
0: <laughs> oh, my God. Like, like to have that and to frame it, where would you put it if you had it? That would be the motherlode.
2: I think I'd put it right on top of my desk.
0: Yeah, exactly. Okay, here's here's another one. See, this is the interview that I wanted to conduct on CNN. But for time reasons, you know, I got to get to all the serious heavy stuff. But I really wanted to ask you about this quote. Hi, this is Nina Totenberg from the Peabody Times. We understand there's been a robbery. What's the context and what was said?
2: Well, somebody called me. This is, you know, I was probably 22 at the time or something like that, 21, 22, and said, There's a robbery going on at the bank. And I called the bank and I said, I understand there's been a robbery. And the guy says, Yeah, this is the robber.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Hapless, I think you described them as.
2: Yes, very hapless. They, They. they fled the bank, trailing the cash that they had stolen so that the cops could easily find them and take all the money that they could, to give it back to the bank, and arrest the robbers.
0: I mean, this is what you wanted to be doing, though, right? I mean, you, you did not complete your education at BU. You wanted to be a, a reporter.
2: I absolutely wanted to be a reporter. And at some point, my mother said after I, I think I was finished my junior year in college. You know, you you're doing everything except the work that is, is your your studies. I wasn't failing or anything like that. I just wasn't particularly interested in it. She said, "You, you know, you don't have to stay." And I said, "Really?" She said, "Yeah." So I went I got myself a job, which was not easy in those days because people didn't hire women on the women's page of the then Record American in Boston, now the Boston Herald.
0: I have to say, I'm so impressed with the fact that you are, you really are the go to person with regard to the Supreme Court of the United States and the ability to unravel complicated legal opinions in the way that you do without a legal training, much less the completion of your BU education. How are you able to do that? Well, remember that.
2: Uh... Didn't people didn't used to get law school degrees necessarily? They quote read for the law. Mm-hmm. Now I wouldn't suggest that anybody hire me to do any sort of commercial work because I don't know any of that kind of work. The sort of bread and butter of law, I probably don't know, but I know more about constitutional law um, than most lawyers probably do because they have no need to know to know that. Having said that, um, it's it's actually hard. I mean, I'm starting to prepare for the current Supreme Court term, and I'm late starting because I've been doing stuff for the book. And I was reading stuff yesterday going, I don't understand this. I don't understand this. I'm going to have to read more, and then I'm going to have to call somebody, swear them to secrecy, Tell them I don't understand it so that I don't look like a fool <laughs> and 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 ask them to take pity on me and explain it to me.
0: <laughs> you describe, Nina, in the book, the difficulty and you just made reference to it of, of women advancing in the workplace. Ruth Bader Ginsburg graduates tied for first in her class at Columbia uh, is uh, provided twelve different interviews, the opportunity for twelve different job inter- and no authors, no offers are forthcoming. She then goes to Rutgers Law School, which is where nineteen seventy one a young reporter named Nina Totenberg calls her. W- what went on in that telephone call?
2: Well, she had just filed her first brief in the Supreme Court arguing that women are covered by the 14th Amendment guarantee to equal protection of the law. But since women didn't have the vote when the 14th Amendment was passed, and since the 14th Amendment was enacted principally to cover previously enslaved peoples, I really didn't understand the brief. So just like I told you, I... I called. My M.O. hasn't entirely changed. Um, I just don't have to do it as often. I called her up and I said, I don't understand this. And I got an hour long sort of lecture in which I could ask questions, all of which boiled down to um, the 14th Amendment guarantees equal protection of the law to all persons and women are persons.
0: Did you know at the end of that call that this was the birth of a special friendship?
2: No, not at all. I just knew this woman had taken me very seriously, had spent a lot of time with me, and I could and did subsequently call her back about all kinds of things. After all, she was beginning to file lots of briefs in the Supreme Court, and I started calling her. And I like to say that uh, RBG uh, taught me some of the finer points of law that a young person who had not gone to law school wouldn't have any idea of. And, you know, there were other people that did that for me. There was a very famous professor, conservative professor at the time, um, named Phil Carland, uh, who taught me a lot about the restraint that courts are supposed to show, how much they're not supposed to decide. And uh, he was somewhat critical of the Warren court for deciding too much. I suspect he would be simply amazed at the current court.
0: The friendship was born when both of you, as you describe in the book, were out of the spotlight. Had you been in the spotlight? Do you think it would have been given the opportunity to gel?
2: I don't know, but, you know... When you are young, and we both were young, she was older than I by more than a decade. But we were; she was in her thirties, I was in my twenties, and um, and we had our noses pressed up against the window pane, trying to break into professions that didn't particularly want to have women in them, not even particularly. They didn't, and want to have women in them. And so we had a lot in common that way, and I think that was. Um, a particular bond that subsequently led to our being closer personal friends than we might have been if we were older and more established. Uh, but, you know, I have friends that I I have made in the last year or two um, who are quite accomplished, not necessarily in the law, but in other fields. And, you know, you just... Having friends is is one of the joys of life.
0: Nina, you're the preeminent Supreme Court reporter in the country. I mean, you're the person who told us about Anita Hill. You're the person who told us Douglas Ginsburg smoked weed at Harvard with students. By the way, I, I definitely want to revisit that subject. How hard was it to maintain the boundaries? Because you say in the book she never shared any gossip, never gave you a single scoop.
2: In fact, quite to the contrary, she would sometimes give interviews to other reporters and tell them things that she hadn't told me. And a couple of times I had to say to her, or at least I thought to myself, Ruth, why didn't you tell me that? That's news. But maybe I didn't ask. Maybe I, I was so respectful of the boundaries that we had that I didn't push it. So in that sense, I suppose um you know there were some interesting things she she told to other reporters um often i think it was also an accident of time that is you know she had a long scheduled interview with my colleague joan biscupic once after a particular supreme court argument in which she came very close to losing her temper um involving a a strip search of a of a young of a uh, 13- or 14-year-old uh, middle school girl. And, um, and, and Joan asked her a lot about what she said in that oral argument. And I thought it was fascinating and news, and it was really somewhat critical of her male colleagues because at that point she was the only woman on the court. Sandra Day O'Connor had retired. And, you know, and I thought, geez, why didn't you tell me that? But the truth is I probably hadn't seen her that week at all, or that two-week period of time. And I had not had occasion to ask her, but I'm not 100% sure I would have asked her.
1: This is the Book Club with Michael Smirconish podcast from SiriusXM.
0: Hey, the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV like an adventure-ready RAV4.
1: Listen to Michael live weekdays on POTUS, Sirius XM channel 124 and on the SXM app.
0: You talk about an emotional telephone call in the book. I'll just pick it up midstream. It was Ruth. She was calling from the ICU, but her voice sounded strong. I'm sitting up in a chair eating a consomme soup that is far better than I had any right to expect at the hospital, she said. After a minute or two of meaningless chit chat, she got down to it. She was calling because she wanted me to know why she had, quote, forbidden David, your husband, to breathe anything about her diagnosis and surgery. The reason, as she put it, was I just didn't want you to be trapped between your friendship for me and your obligations as a journalist. As I write these words, tears still sting my eyes as they did that night. At different moments in life, there are choices of lasting consequence. And I had one of those before me. For the next 18 months, I chose friendship. Ooh, yeah. man.
2: Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't have to... She never put me in a position where I had to sacrifice my job. Um, she, except one time. And she knew that she'd overstepped because I said, I can't do that. That's, this is my job. I have to ask you these questions. But... But... You know people say well did you keep anything from the public in that year and a half and i think i did not you know i knew she was sick as initially she seemed much better but then gradually i could tell that she was not doing terribly well and and so could every other reporter covering the court we could see her and we could and we could hear her at oral arguments And sometimes she participated even from the hospital, so we all knew she was sick. You never know when somebody's going to die, but I did see in the final summer of her life that she was losing the battle. I hoped she wasn't. We all, you know, when we have close friends, hope against hope, just as we do for our loved ones, that somehow there'll be a turn, Um, but there wasn't, and... In just in this month she died, and she died actually a year to the day after my darling friend Cokie Roberts had died. It was a tough year.
0: Your home was her place of refuge during covid
2: yeah
0: it was like the I one place she, she had could this come
2: special relationship with my husband, who's a trauma surgeon, general surgeon um and a wonderful doctor. He really is a wonderful doctor. And she would consult him, not as her doctor, but as her medical confidant. And he often talked with her internist, and they would try to figure out what they could do about this or that. And I would... Observe this, but I never knew what they were talking about. They would go in the kitchen when I was in the living room, or they would. If one time they once or twice, they even repaired to the the bathroom so they could talk without other people realizing they were talking. And 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 so he was her, I'd say, guide and helper. And even when she was diagnosed with lung cancer, which I didn't know at the time. Um, he, we went. We were in New York. She, I, and my husband David, because I was to interview her for several at several places, um, mainly about the the movie that was coming out on the basis of sex about her her life, and. Um, One day he said to me, we had plans to go to the Tenement Museum, and he said to me, I have to go talk to Ruth about uh, and Jane. I have to mediate some sort of family dispute, is the way he put it. And trained observer that I am, I said, okay, I'll go by myself.
0: Jane, her daughter.
2: Jane, her daughter. And what he was doing was going to Sloan Kettering Mm. with Ruth and Jane and Jim, her son, um, to talked to all of the top people concerned with her care about um, her lung cancer surgery and what, what their course of, of future treatment, if any, was going to be. And I never knew that. He kept it from me. And, and uh, as I said, trained observer that I am, I, I had no idea what was going on.
0: The portrayal, the portrayal of RBG that comes from Nina Totenberg's book, Dinners with Ruth, is that despite three bouts of cancer, bowel obstructions, shingles, and probably a whole host of other things that ought to be on that list that she endured, she was an iron lady, petite. You say a great athlete, really good-looking when she was young. There's just so much great personal information here uh, about Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Her driving record, as you say, the only test she ever failed was her driving. But at its core, it is a picture of an unbelievably resilient woman.
2: I mean, resilient is an understatement. I really don't know how how she did what she did. And the only thing that didn't fail her, which is pretty remarkable, because as as she lost weight... And, you know, became frailer and frailer. The only thing that didn't get frailer was her brain, to yeah. the point that I would be telling stories about me or something we had done together. And she, correct she would you. correct me because yeah. she yeah. she had a better memory about it than I did.
0: We're not giving it all away for free. One other subject, though, that I must discuss with Nina Totenberg. Did she regret not taking Obama's hint in, I guess it would have been in 2013?
2: You know, I didn't even know about that luncheon. She never told me about that luncheon uh, in which Obama apparently suggested to her that she might consider retiring given the time frame and But people often asked her, and I asked the question repeatedly why she didn't retire. should she have retired um, and she you know i can she was very forthright about the fact that she by the time Trump was in office, that she wasn't retiring. And before that, her answer basically was who better than me? Because in 2013, she was at the top of her game. She wasn't sick. She was the se- now the senior liberal member of the court and assigning opinions. Um, and she didn't want to quit. What she didn't say, but I always inferred was remember, the, the filibuster then existed. And when she said, who better than me, I think what she meant was that nobody she considered worthy of replacing her, to put it words in her mouth, would, would get past a Republican filibuster. Um, and I also think she wanted to give uh, Hillary Clinton, who she expected to be president, the first woman president, the chance to name her successor and of course she gambled all of those were judgments she made and she they were gambles and she lost
0: have you gamed out what how the cards would have fallen maybe i should say the dominoes had she retired on his watch and what would then have ensued
2: Mm. you know i've thought about this and i don't she might have been right you know i mean i the 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 handling of the Garland nomination almost a year to succeed Justice Scalia almost a year before Trump became president um was really groundbreaking in the sense that no party had ever blocked a nominee for that long without any reason and not even given a nominee a hearing um so i i, I don't know but i think there are at least decent odds that she might have been right, that she, there would have been a, a Republican effort to block whoever was named to succeed her.
0: So it might not have mattered.
2: It might not have mattered. I mean, she could have announced her retirement um, contingent on the confirmation of a successor. But if there was no successor, then she still wouldn't have retired. Right. So, you know, I, I, I'm i not sure. I'm really just not sure. Uh,
0: I also, I'll let you go after this. I, I also loved your insights about Antonine Scalia, Justice Scalia, who, by the way, you proclaim your love for. Interesting to the audience. And RBG had a great relationship with him as well. My lingering question, the Thomases, have you ever invited them for dinner? Have they ever come over for that, that leg of lamb?
2: No. No. I, you know, I, I broke the story that almost cost him his, his seat on the Supreme court. Um, I thought it was a good and valid story. I continue to think it was a valid story that was, it it was about him, but was also about the the judiciary committee, which is supposed to have the obligation to actually look into the background of nominees to the, to the Supreme court and had not done that. Um, So I, I wouldn't put him in that position. You know, I've only been at events where he, relatively small events of, let's say, 40 people, where he is there um, a few times. And mainly they were events involving Justice Scalia. And I just... I didn't want to embarrass him or me. And so I, you know, you can hear where Clarence Thomas is in a room because he's got this wonderful, booming laugh. And I just kept my distance.
0: Okay, Um, I, I ask because you did call Alan Simpson a fucking bully, and then you were his date to the radio TV dinner. So I just thought maybe in Nina Totenberg's world, all can be forgiven.
2: Well, you know, Alan Simpson was one of the ranking... Uh, Republicans on the Judiciary Committee. He had acted inappropriately. Let's just put it that way. And I perhaps acted inappropriately back.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> and, but I needed to cover the Judiciary Committee. I couldn't have an enemy on the Judiciary Committee. I mean, the way you cover a committee is different from the way you cover the Supreme Court. And and I also liked Alan Simpson. He's a very interesting and funny man. And I I. The, the way that happened was that I really did i sent a message that I would like to have you know lunch or something with him. Nothing happened um, but eventually uh, he I invited him to the White House correspondence dinner, and by then, I think his wife and daughter had sat on his head and said, "You know you need to m- make up with this woman <laughs> you, you, right. you, you you did act inappropriately and so um we, I took him to, to the, I, I don't know if it, I think it was actually the radio and TV correspondence dinner, yeah. mm-hmm. and we were the bells of the ball. And ever after that, we have been friends. We have very different versions of that night, and we can just, we have been able to get over it.
0: Final comment. My one note, I was looking for insight on my friend and mentor, Arlen Specter, and he's not in the book. He's not in the book. I wanted to hear Nina Totenberg talk about, you know, his role in so much of this. It,
2: it It's too complicated. <laughs> you know, it really is too complicated. For, for, the, and for it, the sequel. And this, is, this is a memoir. Yeah. And so it's a mem- It's essentially and a great my, one. At, about... And so I, I had a lot of respect for Arlen Specter, but I really sometimes... And I understood almost everything he did, but... It was all about Arlen <laughs> and his survival, and he knew how to survive,
0: sure including did. when he got sick himself. Including when he got sick and never missed a day of any of those hearings. No. And so, he you was can... really sick because I followed him one day,
2: and I just couldn't believe he kept on chugging because he clearly I mean, he was downing acres of water. He was having very serious chemo at the time, I think, and he just, just kept going.
0: Well, he had a constitution like RBG. They were very similar in that respect. They were really peas of a pod in, in terms of having some internal force about them. Hey, I just looked at the clock. I got to run. You have to run. I love your book. And the reason it's I you love too. your book is it's so many books in one. Like, I loved all the Washington Insider court business. I really am taken with your own story, calling the, the robbers, answer the phone. I mean, come on, you can't make this stuff. And, and, if, and of course, it's a great insight about about her. So congratulations, and thank you for being so gracious with your time with me.
2: Uh, thank you, Michael. I'm very flattered to have been given the time. <laughs> have a wonderful day.
0: You too. Nina's book is titled Dinners with Ruth, a Memoir on the Power of Friendships, and it really is terrific. It's great as a book club selection. May I just sure. offer you that? Sure. You know, if you ever wow. in a book club, hey, what are we going to have for a book club? Right. It's a, it, it's a goodie for that, because your conversation will go in so many different directions
1: hear more of michael smirconish on sirius xm's potus channel 124 live
2: weekdays from 9 a.m. to noon east or anytime on the sirius xm app
1: connect with michael on facebook twitter youtube and at smirconish.com book club with michael smirconish new episodes drop mondays wednesdays and fridays bp added more than 70 billion dollars to the u.s economy in 2022 Investments
2: like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arcea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.
1: Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars rewards.